Hi, I'm Lucas James. And I'm Jordan Ross. And I'm AJ Casada. And we're the co-hosts of How to Scale an Agency. After scaling our own agencies to over $185,000 per month in sales and working with agencies doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue like Hawk Media and Neil Patel, we've made this show to interview the top digital marketing agency owners and highlight the fastest ways to scale your agency. If you would like to join the best digital marketing agency community on the planet and let us help you scale, go to twiz.io to sign up today. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, viewers of How to Scale an Agency and all the wonderful people in our Facebook group. Really, really excited for today's episode. If you don't even know, I'm Adrian Casada, your host, co-founder of Revenue Boost. And today, I have a super amazing, amazing marketer and just brilliant entrepreneur on the show for an interview. I'm so excited. Some of you already know Kasim Islam. But if you don't, I'm just going to give a quick introduction and let him speak for himself. But if you don't even know Kasim, he's done... First of all, this intro was like so long because I just, when I was researching him and trying to find out like all the things I could point out, there's just so much stuff this guy's done in all these different spaces. So I'm going to try to give a quick comment reel, but Kasim's built not just one, but four agencies recently had an eight-figure ex- exit. One of those agencies was Solutions 8, which is a top-ranked, top-ranked Google ads agency on the planet with over $100 million in ad spend under its belt. So you're going to have some really, really awesome uh, learning lessons from that. He's also the founder of Driven Mastermind, which I got to attend recently in LA. Co-founded that with Perry Belcher and Jason Flavian. He's also the traffic coach for Digital Marketer and host of the Professional Traffic Podcast. And if you might have seen that. And probably done a lot of other awesome stuff too that I haven't really had a chance to talk about because I think that's enough for one intro. So um, Cass, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, AJ. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. So yeah, really excited for what we're going to dive into today. Today, we're going to dive into, you know, how you scale your agency, but more specifically on the systems operation side and how you were able to basically get out of the day-to-day grind and be able to build a sellable asset. I'm so excited to dive into that. Before we get into the weeds of it, just for anyone who doesn't already know you, which love you to kind of talk a little bit about yourself, anything I didn't mention, and just kind of how your, how your journey was, like how you got here. I failed miserably at everything, which I don't say flippantly. I actually say that as an indication to anybody who's listening. If you feel like you're taking a beating right now, you're probably in the exact right place. And that's a prerequisite for success, especially in the agency space, especially in the agency space. If you're in the e-commerce, the SaaS space, there's a little bit more of a ladder, you know, it's like, and you're just going to start kind of slowly upgrading your life on a pretty incremental scale, the agency space is different because it's not foundational. If you're building an e-commerce business or you're building a SaaS business or any real traditional mode, you have a product or a service that you're adding on to over time. Agency, by definition, is kind of a hub and spoke. You know, I mean, when you take agency for somebody, you assume power on their behalf, right? It's like a writ, let's say, or a fiduciary responsibility. And with every new engagement you have, that changes. And so it's less foundational and more modular, and it's kind of hard to figure out where it fits. And so I think it's one of the hardest business models, period, full stop. Like, I think we're all insane in a lot of ways. It's like, hey, why don't you give me all your problems? And not just you, how about all 30 of you, you know, in different problems, please? Like, why would we make this consistent? So... It's been an interesting journey. But yeah, dude, I started, it's so many weird, horrible evolutions because I'm an idiot. I started trying to do software development and that failed miserably for reasons I can explain if you have any interest. I was building banking software during the banking collapse and software led to web, web led to SEO and SEO led to full funnel marketing. and, And then that ultimately led to Google ads. And I finally got one that hit, you know, it took me damn near 20 years, but you know, a broken clock and all that. So at a certain point, I sort of figured out some things that work. Yeah. So you started not in the agency space at all. Well, actually, I saw your LinkedIn. I didn't know this when I met you, but you said failed actor, right? So you started out doing 
something totally not entrepreneur related? Yeah, that's why I like the agency world because I needed something I could do from set. So I've been in 80 films. They're all horrible. And that was my sad, pathetic passion. I wanted to be an actor. You'd be shocked at how few roles there are for nine foot tall Pakistanis, though. They're just not telling their story. But I needed something that I could do from anywhere. And if you've ever been on a film set, the, the cliche is hurry up and wait. And so you're spending 18 hours in order to execute on maybe 45 minutes of work. But you never know when that 45 minutes is going to happen. So scheduling meetings is really hard. So I started in the very beginning. I knew I wanted to outsource something. I'm like, oh, I can just make other people do the work for me. And I tried outsourcing like medical, legal transcription, mortgage processing, a bunch of random odds and ends. And I I ended up getting a little hit with software. So I started doing these small little software applications that led to big software applications and the acting failed, but that was gone. I still had this little software development shop. And I was in one of the largest bank failures in worldwide history. I was in the building on Bank Failure Friday when the FDIC pulled in in their big black SUVs and started kicking down doors. If you've seen the movie, The Big Short, the bank that I was in is what that movie is about. It's the bank that brought down Lehman Brothers. And I was building software for them when everything collapsed. And then so too did my whole financial world collapse. And I lost my house to foreclosure, my car to repossession. I was trolling Costco on the weekends for free trials. Like that's how I was eating. And dude, that was the best thing that ever happened to me from an entrepreneurial perspective, because it taught me so many important lessons about money. Money is the entrepreneurial dry powder. I heard Alex Hormozzi talk about this recently too, and he said it way more articulately than I did. But for all you young whippersnappers out there, you'll get a couple of little or maybe big wins. And God, I did the dumbest thing a human could do. I went and I bought the house on the hill and I bought the idiot's car and I'm always picking up the check. I'm wearing $200 shirts and just, I was just a douchebag. And I was one month away from just catastrophe every month. You don't realize that in the beginning. You're like, these are my things. And then you find out later, no, these are the bank's things. And they're very quick to tell you that when you stop paying on them. So my old man, gray beard advice to all young entrepreneurs out there is get really good at money, dry powder, all that shit. But dude, there's nothing wrong with a Ferrari. If you can pay for it cash without it impacting any opportunity cost, period. But if you're financing, leasing anything, you know, the beach house, the Ferrari, the trips that stop that, all of it, you want to live in the smallest, as long as it's safe, you want to live in the smallest little shoebox you could possibly live in. You want to drive the oldest, beatest little, you know what I mean? Like just because it's the money that's going to give you the opportunity and on every other level of analysis to hire people, other people can't hire, to write out storms, other people can't write out, to take on a client and would need some investment, try out new software applications, invest in building new things. Like you have to have money, you have to have dry powder. And if you look at it as a tool, you'll start to stack it. But if you start playing those games, and I'm not saying this from a judgment perspective, I'm saying this as somebody who played it the incorrect way and then came out just like scorched, man. It was horrible, but I'm glad it happened. I was 20 years old when I had my first big shot in the pocket, let's say, and I was 22 by the time it all failed. And so that's a good early stage to have gotten $100,000 in debt and more. Yeah, because you didn't have as much to lose then. It was very right. easier to build than if you were like in your late 30s or something. But that's pretty nuts, dude. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned Alex Ramosi because I know he talks about that all the time. I was watching one of his videos the other day and he was saying that he was living in like a $200 apartment when he was profiting 20 grand a month, like sharing yeah, it with him and eight months. other people. And they're like yeah, dog shit on the floor. And he's, and he's, <laughs> he's figured out how to scam Chipotle out of more beef. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I really love that guy, man. It's creepy how much I like him. Actually. I need to 
peel that back a little bit. He's my favorite thought leader at the moment. I think he's really integrous in the way he approaches things and shows up. Yeah, he's definitely another level for sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of him too. So maybe we can understand why I've been at the end talk about that. But uh, I mean, I've kind of realized the same thing for my business because I've done the same thing. You know, when I first started making money, I would just spend all of it. And even though I was making a lot, I was still like, nothing left. Right? right. And then COVID in my business, I lost like 90% of my clients overnight. That's when I kind of learned that lesson. Uh, it wasn't as bad as your situation. If that makes you feel any better. It wasn't as bad as your situation where I didn't have so much debt or didn't have like a house or anything at that point. So I was still in my early 20s. But yeah, I kind of realized that any personal expense basically is a business expense or it's opportunity cost for the business. Right. So I think it's definitely a different way of looking at it. What, what else did that teach you though? Mindset wise, like how did you even deal with that? I got it. Because for a lot of people that would just been shattering. Dude, I want to meditate on what you just said for a minute because that was really brilliant. That's a writer downer, especially again for the agencies. Any personal expense is really a business expense because mm-hmm. in the beginning, you are the business. Yeah. I love the way that you frame that. It's like co-centric circles. People tend to think like, oh, here's me and here's the business and I can spend this over here and it's fine. And it's like, all right, if that's the way you want to look at it. But in the very beginning, those two things, even if they're not the same, they're both in the same dinghy, you know, on the same ocean and in the same storm. So I think that was really wise. I didn't deal with it well. I'd like to tell you a hero story of like, you know, I had the tiger played and I did a bunch of sit-ups in the morning and I started, but that was it. I just sat, I was in this apartment that I could only afford to get in the apartment because they gave you three months free if you sign an 18 month lease. And I ended up being evicted because I fell behind almost right away. And I'm in a bathtub of gasoline lighting matches, like just feeling sorry for myself, just pathetic. And it took me longer than it should have. But what's interesting about it is I just to feed myself, I started trolling Craigslist for website work because I knew I couldn't build software myself, but I knew enough about software development and I'd figured enough out to just manage processes. And so I could fix websites and build a website if I needed to. And, but that felt like so far beneath me, you know, I was like, I'm a software developer. Now I'm doing what it's like the cooks doing the dishes. But what was interesting about the web gig is you get real quick jobs, real easy. It was like Uber for me. I can just go to Craigslist and find a $50 like, oh, can you fix the flash banner on my website? And then people started asking me questions. And this is the thing that I'd encourage agency owners to maybe start to observe in their own lives. It's called the corridor principle. And the corridor principle states that the entrepreneur is not going to identify the peak opportunity until they're already pursuing other opportunities. And this is massively frustrating for most of us because you're like, oh, dude, I'm going to go start an agency for, you know, naturopathic physicians. And then you build out the website and the funnels and the content and all the collateral and the media. And you've told all your friends and you put it on LinkedIn and you're building and you're, you're like, I've got an agency for naturopathic physicians. And while you're serving physicians, you realize that they're hard. They don't pay a lot. They churn. They're geolocated. You can't push a rope, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But while you're working with the physicians, you end up in contact with the provider for their prolotherapy and platelet therapy materials and then see this massive chasm in the ability to bridge the gap between the physicians and the prolo and platelet. And now that's the real opportunity, but you have to be willing to get off this boat onto that boat. And that's the quarter principle. You're only ever going to see real opportunities once you're out on the field of battle. And it's never the way that you chose to engage. And it's happened so often in my life where the thing that made me immense amount of money only came because I was I made the wrong decision, but I threw myself out there. And so here I am building websites and everybody keeps asking me, almost as ubiquitous truth. It was like, all right, how do I get my website found? And I'm like, I don't know, dude, like you should have thought of that before you built the website. You only have to hear that so many times before you're like, okay, I can, well, clearly I can charge for this. And so I went and I started learning SEO and that led me to the whole digital marketing world. SEO was my gateway drug. I think that's true for a lot of older agency owners. Like if you talk to anybody over 35, everybody started with SEO and then kind of got sick of it because it got less scalable. 
Mm. Yeah, that's definitely the case with a lot of people I talk to and a lot of people we've had on the show as well. So you start an SEO that and then led you to Google AdWords. And real quick, what was that principle called? The corner? The corridor principle. Gotcha. Corridor. Corridor like a hallway. Yeah, corridor. Okay, gotcha. And the lesson is just more to be open to pivot or change and kind of give up. Sort of. that, and, and also, I think it's two parts. That's the second part. The first part is you got to get out onto the court, onto the field, onto the whatever you want to be. Like, choose your right. analogy. Because, dude, I can't tell you how many people are like sitting on the sidelines, twiddling their thumbs, trying to wait for the idea to come to them. It's not going to happen. You have to start and then be nimble. And it's a balance of risks. Because we're all contradictions, right? I just wrote a Twitter thread about this because you believe he who hesitates is lost, but you also believe look before you leap. And they're both true. And so you believe, hey, you need to be nimble with opportunities, but you also need to commit. And both those are true. And it's up to you. That's the entrepreneurial conundrum. It's up to you to decide when, okay, I'm done pivoting. Now I need to drill deep. That's the balance that you have to strike. And nobody ever gets it 100% right. But I think you can get it mostly right most of the time if you're paying attention. Yeah, makes sense. I'll have to check out that Twitter thread for sure. Because yeah, I've always found most things in life or business, they end up being like, it's never an extreme. It's like there's two sides and you kind of weigh back and forth depending on the situation, like finding the right balance between two extremes. Yeah, it's Aristotle's golden mean. At the end of the day, everything really just lands in the middle. Like we all just need to be really good moderates. Which is <laughs> yeah. unto itself a contradiction, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Google Ads Agency was your first big thing. And you built more than one, right? So you built a couple and... and yeah, my first exit was... I did an agency that generated motivated seller leads for real estate investment. Like if you wanted to sell your house fast for cash. We had the highest performing real estate investment campaign on the planet for seven years. I sold that to my partner in 2019. And that was really built... That's the corridor principle. So I had a Google Ads Agency and I'm running Google Ads for everybody which maybe was ill-advised. I should have niched down, but so many opportunities came out of that. I wonder whether or not that's really sound advice in retrospect. But I'm running Google ads for a buddy who's fixing and flipping houses in Phoenix. And I'm just seeing how much money he's making. You know, he's spending one to $2,000 a month making 30 grand to flip. And he was using like bandit signs and door knockers and dialing for dollars. So I was the one that's almost like, dude, I bet you Google can beat whatever it is that you're doing. And so I proved that out. And then I said, let me partner with you. And so he gave me 30% of his business and we started fixing flipping houses together. And within three months, we had more leads than he could ever work. And so I said, let's go sell these leads. And he's like, no, I don't want to feed my competitors. So we went to other geographies and we started selling the leads. I had one real estate investor in every major MSA. So every major city in the United States, we had an investor in and we were the most expensive PPC agency in the investment world, but we were also the best. My cost per lead in Phoenix was 70 to $90. Homevestors which is the gold standard was paying 500. But if you look at that, that's a phenomenal example, the corridor principle. I'm running a Google ads agency. I'm doing great as a Google ads agency. You know, I'm making a shit ton of money, but service-based and it's coming in a dollar at a time. And then all of a sudden I see this chance to get these real big pops. And so we rolled up a real estate investment agency and then I ended up selling that. He and I had a difference of opinion. Really, really good dude. Great relationship, good experience. Just wanted to take it in wildly different directions. He bought me out and then I continued to niche down into Solutions 8 for Google Ads. So Solutions 8 was number one. GeoFlip was number two. With my business partner, we have an agency specifically for Montessori schools, which is the smallest niche in the whole wide world. Like it's not schools, not preschools, not private preschools. It's private Montessori preschools. There's only 4,500 accredited Montessori schools in North America. I have 4,500 on my list. Like I effectively for margin of error have all Montessori schools. And I did that because I have an obsession with Montessori education. I have two little boys. They both go to a Montessori school. I think every child deserves to go to a Montessori school. So I wanted to roll up something that, not from a philanthropic perspective per se, because I still expected it to make money, but I had no idea how profitable it would be. And when you niche down to that level, I create one website and I can sell it to 4,500 people. The leverage there is unbelievable. And we do website and content and paid ads and social and CRM and automation and all that stuff. And so it's a great little business. And it's nice to serve people you like. 
My, yeah. my business partner in Driven, Perry Belcher, he gave me advice that was given to him. He goes, never hate your customer. If you're a hardcore liberal and you're serving hardcore conservatives, that's a tough place to be even if you're making money. Never hate your customer. And maybe the opposite should be true. If you don't love somebody, you don't deserve to serve them. And I know that sounds like really weird and touchy-feely and maybe a little eccentric, but even from a logical perspective, shouldn't that be true? Like if you don't really love somebody, if you don't really care about them being better at the end of this transaction, maybe you don't deserve to participate in that transaction. And we can redefine love if you want to. Like you don't have to take them home and go to bed with them, but you should desire, what is it? Jordan Peterson says that love is the desire that all things flourish. So you should at a minimum desire that their life is improved after having engaged with you. And I've found myself due specifically with attorneys. We had an opportunity to niche down with attorneys on a silver platter handed to me this little agency from somebody who already had the audience, but didn't want to do the work. And I just fucking hate attorneys. Yeah. And hear me correctly. There are entrepreneurs who happen to have law degrees, love them. Awesome people work with a lot of them. My attorney, Scott Weiss, good dude. He's really an entrepreneur, pretends to be a lawyer, but like real lawyers, trial lawyers, people who sell their ethics for money. I don't want to eat with them. You know what I mean? I don't want to be in the same yeah. room or sit down at the same table. I don't want my kids going to the same school. Like I just don't like them. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. I'm so sorry if your dad was an attorney. I'm not trying to, you know, he wasn't now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and for anybody who's listening, I realize that we all have varying degrees of opinions on things. But all that to say, I shouldn't be serving attorneys is a wholesale truth because I don't love them the way that I love Montessorians. I hope I'm yeah. sorry that got so soapboxy, dude. I won't do that. <laughs> no, that was good, man. I mean, well, I like what you said. How it's not even about you; it's also like fair for them. You should have someone who actually genuinely is interested and cares about improving their situation. Right. Well, cool. No, I think that kind of segues well into niche down because yeah, so I know we want to talk today about how beyond building four systems about four agencies, that doesn't happen by chance, right? That happens really through like having a repeatable process. And that's how you're able to exit as well. I know we want to dive into like systems, operations, how are you able to really get out of the day-to-day and then build a scalable machine really? And when we were talking about this last time, you were telling me that like the first step or when you're coaching an agency, the first thing you look at is the foundations, right? Like their niche and offer. Before getting into like systems automation and the stuff we want to talk about. Talk me through like how you think about niche and offer. I imagine there's a lot of agencies listen to this that maybe you're doing everything for everyone and have to say, maybe know they should niche down, know they should maybe develop an offer, but just don't know where to start. Yeah. So first I'll say you're in the exact right place. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. You can't start niched. So if you and I were buddies, we're good at what we do, we're successful. If we decided to pick a niche right out of the gate, fresh, we'd be wrong. We'd pick wrong 99 times out of 100 without context. And that's just a fact. It's a rounding error for people that have been successful their first time around. So I call it the hourglass of niching. Picture an hourglass in your mind's eye. What you want to do is start broad. So I started with a full funnel marketing agency, like an idiot. I'm like, I'll do anything for money, basically, is what a full funnel marketing agency says. And over time, what we ended up finding, and it wasn't even me that spotted this, by the way, it was an employee who became my business partner because he was so valuable. I had to give him a small chunk of the company or I couldn't afford to live without him. His name's John Moran. There's a lot of people who know Solutions 8 know him. Brilliant, brilliant guy. He's the reason that I am rich. Brought John on and John goes, dude, everybody who's successful is successful with Google Ads first. Like if I bring on 10 clients and I run Google Ads for all of them, the two that are successful with Google Ads are going to be the two that I have long-term. And everybody who turns out, and it, it makes a lot of sense why I'm basically taking you, I'm suiting you up in armor, I'm putting a sword in your hand, and I'm throwing you in the Coliseum with your competitors. And I'm saying survive. And the clients that can survive that means that they have a good offer, they have a good price, they actually answer the phone, they have good process, they have good fulfillment. So Google Ads is just a phenomenal litmus test. And in the beginning, we started using Google Ads just to kind of figure out like where to go on behalf of clients. And over time, we just niched down into it in its entirety. But I never, ever, ever, never, ever would have chosen Google Ads if you forced, if you put a gun to my head and said niche, I'd have chosen SEO. 
and SEO is non-scalable, always changing, and, and doesn't exist anymore, by the way. Like, there's no such thing. Talk to Michael Cottom, who's the world authority in SEO. There's no such thing as recurring SEO. There's one-time technical SEO and then link building and content creation. And content creation is getting eaten alive and link building is getting trash compacted. So I would have chosen wrong. If you made me choose, if you said, okay, you can't choose SEO, I'd have chosen 19 other things before I chose Google Ads. But I found Google Ads because I was at the hourglass of niching. I was at the top. I got to see everything. And then I slowly started cutting off services. So just like an hourglass, you slowly taper down and then you find that opportunity, that kernel that really allows you to scale. And now you found your niche. And there's two ways to niche. There's an X-axis and a Y-axis to niching or niching or however you want to pronounce it. The X-axis is the service niche. So it's like, are you offering, you know, if it's marketing services, are you offering traffic? And if traffic, is it paid traffic, organic, and if paid, is it social or search, et cetera. The Y-axis is the service niche, or excuse me, the industry niche. So are you, are you just going to everybody or is this to, you know, what would you say, professional service providers or just CPAs or just people? And so you can get really specific on your service and really specific on your industry. I always recommend to get specific on your service first. Because if you get specific on your industry first, think of yourself as you're a handyman and you've got tools on your tool belt. And because you're really broad on your services, you have too many tools. You have too many things on your holster and you're a little encumbered and you walk into a client's office and you're like, what do you want? And there's just too much there. If you niche down on an industry, you still have that problem. You just now have that problem with a more specific avatar. You don't necessarily know what you're good at yet. Figure out what you're good at. And I, you know, I hate to harp on this, but I'll just spend 60 seconds on it and you can tell me if it's worthwhile. You got to get good. That's the other thing that pisses me off a little bit now about some of the agencies and the narrative I see around agencies. You actually have to be good. And one of the questions I get a lot when I was coaching agencies for digital marketing was, how do I get clients? And I'm getting it from people who, by their own admission, aren't yet good at the thing that they're selling. And I'm like, you don't yet. Like, you can't go into heart surgery until you know how to be a heart surgeon. Go get good. So get good on your service. And then in the hourglass of niching, the reason it tapers back out is because with the Montessorians maybe being the best example, we were able to figure out, okay, Google ads for Montessori schools. It was unbelievably profitable, but there's only so many Montessori schools. And so once I saw how deep that well would go, it's like, well, what else does a Montessori school need? Well, they also need websites and content and CRM and automation and stock photo library. And then I get to branch back out. And so the hourglass of niching helps you identify what's going to work and then maximize profitability. And all your profits come on the latter half of the hourglass. I hope that framework is helpful. Did that make sense? No, that's awesome. It makes perfect sense. Yes, yeah, good way to visualize it. So basically, there's a point where you're like extremely niche, but then from there you expand and just keep scaling. You add more, more into your tool belt over time, pretty much. Correct. And where you go, I mean, this is what's fun about being an entrepreneur. I didn't have to offer more services to Montessori schools. If I wanted to, I could say, well, what are other things like Montessori schools? So I could have gone after like Waldorf education, which is a different. Montessori. Now I prefer Montessori and I don't want to muddy those waters. So I didn't do that. But how you branch out, it's a three-dimensional problem. You can look at it from any perspective. Yeah. So it could have been adjacent niches or it could have been different different things. Gotcha. Back to what you said about agencies getting good. What would you advise someone to do? Someone who still needs to kind of get better at the thing, like just do it for themselves, do like case study projects for free. Yeah, for free. Dude, post it on Facebook. Every You could have 200 friends on Facebook. And I realize none of y'all use Facebook anymore. You guys are all TikTokers or Instagrammers or whatever it is. But post it on socials and just throw it out there. Say, hey, look, I want to start an agency. I'm committed. I've taken this training and education, which is a prerequisite. So let people know you're not an absolute dummy. And now I need some guinea pigs. Here's the risk to you. I don't necessarily know what I'm doing yet. Things could go horribly wrong. You could waste a little bit of time and money. 
here's the benefit to you. You will never have anybody as engaged as I am. You'll never have anybody who's willing to go as hard and work as hard as I'm willing to work to make this work. And I'm not going to stop until I can make this function. And so you're going to get, I hope, the best, most engaged service in exchange for allowing me to learn inside of your sandpit. And some people will be repelled by that message. And some people are going to be like, hell yeah, let's do this. And those are the yeah. people you want. And you only need two or three, really. You only need two or three. And now you have phenomenal case study, phenomenal testimonial. You actually have some confidence. The best way, the best way to feel proficient is to be proficient. And now when you right. approach a client, you're like, oh no, I know how to do this. Let me tell you what I did for my dad's carpet cleaning business or whatever. So yeah, go out and do it for free a couple of times until you're really able to crack the code or go work for somebody else. Dude, I've got almost 100 employees, 80% of them are entrepreneurs. There's some variability there just based off of geography, but it's okay to start. And I mean, I've launched some pretty significantly sized careers. I'll try not to name drop because I don't want to embarrass them in case they don't want other people to know that I was the stepping stone, let's say. But it's all right to kind of like cut your teeth and make your mistake on somebody else's dollar. There's no shame in having a job for a little bit and figuring it out that way. Yeah, you're getting paid to learn at that point, right? Right. So, so in summary, niche on services first, then niche on the industry. And then you kind of just expand out there over time, however you like, however it makes sense. That's like an awesome blueprint for people to follow. Just one thing to harp on too. So you were in a niche with 4,500 companies. How did you... Like a lot of people wouldn't even, got, wouldn't even have gotten started. And I also understand that it was somewhat of a passion project for you as well. Of course, still to make money, but like a lot of people would have been like, that's too small. I'm not even going to try it. How did you, any thoughts on like how you made that work? What, what the lead gen even looked like in such a small niche? Yeah. So I've got a rule. It's a non-negotiable now. I will not start a business unless I know where the traffic is going to come from. And that just comes from whatever the reverse of Stockholm syndrome is. I've run traffic for, and I've seen amazing product services businesses die because they haven't solved their traffic problem. And this whole, like, if you build it, they will come. It's horseshit. It's a lot. Yeah. So I won't start a business unless I know where the traffic's coming from with my real estate investment agency. And I didn't have this rule at this time, by the way, I've just retroactively realized, man, everything I've done that's been successful had a traffic solution first. So with GeoFlip, we had a really strong relationship with one of the rising stars in the CRM world for real estate investors. 80% of my clients came from that one referral source. It was a CRM that was also a mastermind in a weird way. Like if you use their software, you also got their education. So we would just show up once a month, show people how we were using the software, and then also be pitching our services at the same time. And 80% of my clients came, they're called InvestorFuse. 80% of my clients came from InvestorFuse. When I started my Montessori agency, I partnered with a guy named Matt Hillis, who he's Montessori royalty. His mom started a school in the 70s. He owns four schools. He was on the board of the Montessori Administrators Association. Everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. He used to speak at the AMI and AMS conferences. He was a demographic hub and he got us our first dozen clients, which is all you really needed, you know, in order to be, now I'm profitable and I can ride this out for as long as I want to ride it out. I wouldn't start a new business until I know exactly where I'm going to go for traffic. Even my Google ads agency, I got all my Google Ads clients from Google Ads. And dude, CPCs are 10x what I used to pay. So if I tried to prove that model today, it wouldn't prove. I don't know that I'd encourage anybody to start a Google Ads agency today. I don't think it's financially viable. I spend $200,000 to $250,000 a month in ad spend. Now I can do that because I've got a massive agency, but I couldn't have done that. I'm banking on a 14 to 16 month LTV. I'm spending with the expectation that I have a client for 14 to 16 months. Most agencies don't have that either. They don't have that level of retention. Right. So you really want to know, especially if you want to scale, you want to solve your traffic problems. And I, I think the best way to do that is go to where the traffic already exists because trying to create your own audience, there are people that are really good at that. Alex is one of them. Hormozy goes in, he's done it four or five times. He's got whatever that is, man. But that to me feels artisanal. 
It doesn't feel like I can go to school and learn how to do that. It feels more like, it's like Tony Robbins too. There's just people that have that thing, that spark, let's say. I'm not that person. I need something a little bit more academically sound. And so I like finding a well that has yet to be drilled in my way. So let's say that you provide accounting services for veterinarians. I come to you and I'm like, dude, I'm the best Google Ads agent in the whole wide world. What if I offered all of your veterinarians Google Ads services? And what if the first month was free? And what if I didn't improve their lead take rate? I paid for their next tax assessment or whatever. You're like, holy shit, that's amazing. But now I have no traffic problem. Now I've got all the veterinarians I could possibly service and I've been able to solve that issue. So I think those types of strategic partnerships, I don't like using the word affiliate because affiliates, that's a dirty game in a lot of ways, but those types of partnerships are, that's the quick and easy button, especially if you've already identified the niche you want to go after. Is that what you mean by picking the well you want to go after or is strategic partnerships one example of picking the well you want to go after? No, that's just one example. I mean, dude, your traffic solution might be paid ads as long as it's proven. I'm doing this right now with a buddy. We have a very specific asset class in real estate. So just think like something as niche as mobile home parks. That's a really specific type of real estate asset. We want to start an agency going after nothing but that. Well, before I've even filed for the LLC, I'm running Google ads to see, A, is there a viable amount of traffic? B, is the cost per acquisition? Is the juice worth the squeeze, basically? And so far, it's showing some signs of life, which is cool. But until I'm able to say like, oh, I I put a dollar in and I get $4 out, cool. I'm not going to like go all in on that. I need to make sure that the traffic problem is solved before any other problem. And I think, dude, the traffic problem is the biggest problem in business period, full stop. This is where I disagree with Hormozzi a little. And I'm sure if he and I got into an extemporaneous argument, he would win. But I don't know exactly how he would buttress his end. I know he's obsessed with the offer. I would take a mediocre offer with good traffic over an amazing offer with shit traffic. Because you can fix a mediocre offer with good traffic because good traffic allows you to split test what's working, what's not working. If you've got an amazing offer and no traffic, I don't know. And I've seen that. You know, I've got, again, I manage $100 million in ad spend. I see this all the time. People coming to us with amazing shit. And they're like, all right, I've got five grand a month. What can we do? And the answer is nothing. You can do nothing. Because your clicks are $50. And $50 a click on five grand is, again, it's a rounding error. Like, how much traffic am I really going to be able to show? You're stopping three feet from gold. So solve the traffic first. And if you can get good at traffic, man, God bless America. Like, there's nothing better than being good at traffic. Yeah, that's great. Love it. And for Solutions 8, you said Google Ads was your main traffic source? Or what was the primary challenge you were getting clients from? Yeah, we've got a lot of referral partners, of course. Digital Marketer was a referral partner. Smart Marketer, HubSpot. Agency partner programs are great. I was an Infusionsoft partner and a HubSpot partner and an Acton, Entreport, Optify, blah, 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 blah. Agency partner programs are great. I like getting into agency partner programs, not early because you don't want to be the first couple of agencies because that means they don't know what they're doing, but early-ish. That's when they still on a growth path and they're not on a maintenance. Like I wouldn't become a HubSpot partner right now today. It's way too saturated and incestuous and they squeeze the agencies out. But agency partner programs are cool because people come to you you know the problem they have. A HubSpot user comes to you and they're like, oh, you're a HubSpot agency. Great. I need help using HubSpot. Awesome. We're off to the races. And now I get to add on to HubSpot, whatever the hell that I want. So that's a good place to start. And that's a nice, that's a good example of having solved the traffic problem, right? Like that's a well and you know where the well is and how deep the well goes and how many other competitors there are around this well. Like there's way too many HubSpot partners and they're way too sophisticated. If you look at HubSpot partners, they're assassins, dude. Like, I mean, the best agencies in the whole wide world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know, especially if I'm early, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to war with those fools. Right now, I think being a uh, man, I would go all the way in on high level. 
everybody wants, needs, and is dying for help in high level. And you can be an agency for agencies in high level. And Clavio is another example of that. They're not early stage, but they're early stage-ish. And they live only within Shopify. Agency partner programs, just other agencies. One of my biggest referral partners was OMG Commerce, which was another Google Ads agency. It was Chris Brewer. I met him at a speaking gig. And he was just bigger than me. Basically, it became like, hey, man, I know there's a bunch of clients you're not taking because they're too small for you. I'll take them and I'll kick you 10% of the recurring for life. And dude, what I was paying Chris was six figures per annum, sometimes multi six figures for the referrals that he was sending me. Now, that was great for me, but it was great for him. And for, you know, in agencies aiming at 20% margins to give him 10% basically means we're splitting the profits. My margins were better than that, but it's not an insignificant amount. So you can strike up those partnerships. When you do that type of thing, they'll pay early, pay often. If I've got a couple of agencies that I used to refer work to, and we had like kind of the gentleman's agreement, like, oh yeah, you know, I'll kick you back. You kick me back. And I never got a check. And you know, I don't remember them as aggressively yeah. as I might remember somebody else. And it's not even really about the money. It's about the reciprocity and knowing like, okay, we're in, because we've all chosen, this is how we're keeping score. It's money. And so you want to pretend like, oh, money doesn't matter. And it's like, well, it's the game. It's the fuel. It's what we're doing. And yeah, maybe I've got a great big agency and I make a bunch of money, but I still want to know that you're playing the game according to the rules. So I always like people viewing me as a fast pay. And I think that's a really good way to build referral partnerships. Yeah. Awesome. So cool. So we covered some amazing foundations, right? So niching down on service, niching down the industry, getting your traffic sorted. Now, when we talk about, you know, getting into systems and how, because like, look, not a lot of agencies can get to 100, 100 employees. And this is a big problem I always see with agencies. They can get off the ground, but then being able to scale the operation, it's not easy. It's a lot of people to manage. I don't know where you want to start, but I would just love to just dig into like how you think about systems, delegation, operations. And also if we can even touch on how it's different at different stages. I think you bring in a really great perspective that a lot of people don't have at the scale of agencies you build. How you think about it at different stages. That's a really good question. It's hard to remember where you were. You know what I mean? So like, it's weird for me now giving advice because my advice isn't applicable. If you're a couple hundred grand gross rev, we're at seven, eight million gross rev. And so don't listen to me right now. You want to, what you want to do is listen to me when I was at a couple hundred grand and I don't remember all of those problems. I will tell (laughs) you that one thing that I did massively incorrectly is I kept trying to hire unicorns. My old job descriptions are still available somewhere. And it's like, all right, you have to know Google ads and SEO and graphic design and web and tech and client management. Nobody can do If they can do that, they're an entrepreneur. They're doing it themselves. So go hire a person for a role, pay more than... And here's the other thing that I did wrong is I kept trying to pay less and get more. You know, I wanted a bargain. Don't do that. Go because when you pay people 10% more than the high water mark in any industry, you get 10 times the output. And I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not being Grant Cardone here. 10X. It's a fact. It's the Pareto distribution. It's a scientifically proven fact. The pre- People think Pareto is, is 20% of the participants yield 80% of the output. That's not technically true. It's the square root of the total participants yield half, which if we're talking about 10 people, that means that three people are doing 50% of your work, which isn't that big a variance. You've seen this if you've ever had friends help you move. But if you're talking about a million people, it's all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, a thousand people are doing half of everything that is happening here. It's an unbelievable lever to be able to pull. So go find peak performers. Peak performers are relatively easy to find. It's money and contribution. You need to pay. We've gamified life. The way you win the game is make more money. A peak performer is going to want to get paid more. It's a fact. So don't try to pay less, pay more. Two, let them contribute meaningfully. That means they have to be able to make decisions and be autonomous and be empowered. And so many entrepreneurs want to keep everything like, I'm going to do all this. And it's okay to do that because you've had shit employees and you've, you've seen mistakes. But when you get a peak performer, let them take it and run with it. And you'd be shocked at how few systems you need with peak performers. And there's a story about Douglas MacArthur, who's just an amazing human. 
if you haven't read about him. And he would go to the Army Corps of Engineers or whoever, and he'd be like, I need all those tanks on that side of the river by Friday. And the engineers would be like, okay, cool. So you want a bridge? He's like, I need all those tanks on that side of the river by Friday. And like, okay, so we're going to airlift. And he's like, all the tanks, that side of the river. Don't give a shit. Don't talk to me about, it's not my problem. I hired you to do this thing, go do the thing. And when you do that with peak performers, man, I've had some of the most amazing, my entire agency library catalog is built on the backs of people that are way smarter than me. And that's not like, you know, a lot of people like, oh, I only hire people smarter than me. Like, that's actually like very true. When you meet my staff, you're like, why are you all working for him? But do my EA for the longest time is now my CTO, a young man named Ivan. I found him on Freelancer. He was a kid in Poland going to school, Ukrainian by birth. We ended up getting him out of Ukraine when Russia attacked. He's here now, but he was my virtual assistant and he was so smart and capable and effective. And I would just say, hey, here's my problem. And he would go solve it. And it's, we know, I ended up paying him 20% more than he asked. Because when he came to me for his ask, I was like, dude, you're not asking for enough. And I don't want you to be stressed about money. So higher peak performers, they'll do so much more than you think people are possibly capable of. And then I don't do like, I don't make people clock in or out. I don't track paid time off. I don't screenshot desk chops. Yeah. What a business you'd want to work in. Some of these job descriptions that I see online are freaking laughable. It's like, you know, must comply with all company policies and dot I's and cross T's. And it's like, fuck you. Why, why would I want, you know, like be a fun place. It doesn't have to be all fun and games. We're going to work. We're going to work hard, but stop trying to squeeze blood out of people. Like really, yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's enough of that. No, man, I know what you mean about some of the ridiculous. I mean, like if you have to have that many systems to micromanage someone like then. First of all, that means your life kind of sucks. That just sounds boring as hell, right? Yeah. Also, it's like, that's just not the right people, right? If you have to manage them like that much, it's, it's a problem. You know, so yeah, I only hire grownups too. I tell people when I hire them, I, I stole this from Ryan Dice. If you work for Ryan Dice, there's a three strike rule. The first time you make a mistake, and, and we're talking about a tax relevant mistake. It's not, you didn't put the trash bag back in the trash can. But the first time you make a mistake, you sit down and Ryan goes, hey, AJ, this is my fault. You're a smart guy. You're driven. You're motivated. I hired you for those reasons. I know for a fact you wouldn't do this if it wasn't, if I didn't manage expectations or explain to you how important it is. I just need you to know this is really important for these reasons and I need to make sure that we're on the same page. Cool, cool. Second time you do it, it's your fault. Hey, AJ, we had that conversation and I know the first time was my fault, now it's your fault. I need you to know this is untenable. This is a deal breaker for me. Are we on the same page? Put it in writing, cool, cool. Third time you're fired. Young entrepreneurs have a hard time firing. Dude, I hire slow and fire quick. I don't have time, effort, energy, patience. I'm not gonna fuck around. If anybody asks me a question they should be able to Google in five minutes, they're done. It's over. Are you out of your fucking mind? You have the world's lexicon of knowledge at your fingertips and you shot that off to the CEO of the fucking company. Are you insane? But I let them know on the front end. I'm like, solve the problems. I haven't had that issue in years, years and years and years and years. Yeah. It's putting the right people on the boat, man. Like, and then, and then God, does it just fly without you? They come up with shit that I'd never would have thought of in a million years. What are some big mistakes you made with hiring people or even not just hiring, but like managing, retaining anything stick out? Yeah, I've made a lot of them. Trying to hire unicorns is the biggest one by far. Even if you find a unicorn, it's usually because you found them for a role. So look for a specific role. And if you don't have enough work to justify that role, hire them part-time. That's a really big one. Assuming what people are capable of, that's another really big one. Don't underestimate folks and put them in a position to wow you. And then the last one is... You just got to be willing to let people go. One very specific story. There was a young lady who worked for us who was a, a recently singled mom. She was, you know, everybody liked her. She was kind and empathic. She shit at her job. And it wasn't just her being shit at her job. The entire department saw, it's like, oh, I'm not going to use her real name, Emily. We're all going to pick up the slack for Emily. 
and killed morale for like a five, six person department. And I, dude, I put up with for months because I'm like, she's a single mom. I was raised by a single mom. You know, I'm like, dude, I, what am I? But it, you know, at the end of the day, what's so funny too about it is when I finally let her go, I was the bad guy. I was like, how could you? You made promises to me, which isn't, you know, I was just like, I'm trying to make this work. Had I let her go in the very beginning, she'd be like, no, that makes sense. You know, thanks. I'm so sorry. I could have given her severance. So your business isn't a charity and it can't be. If you want to provide charity, fire them and then give them money. And now everybody's really clear on what just happened. But if you continue to pay somebody, that's your fault. And it's a hard lesson to learn. I'm really good at firing now. It lasts a couple of minutes. We start on the Mm -hmm. call and it's like, hey, I just want to make sure that you know why we're here. And then usually my dad always told me, he goes, if you fire anybody and they're surprised by it, then you failed them. So they should know jumping on. Yeah, dude, I wouldn't hang on to people any longer than the minute you get that little tingle, like, you know, I should probably let this person go. That's the sign. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I started my business with my wife, Bella. She's a, probably watching this. She's a co-founder. And we have this rule that like, hey, if we're ever complaining to each other about the same employee more than like three times, I mean, it should be even less than that. that that's when we just know like something's wrong, yeah. right? Because we'll always give it, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, I think for me, I definitely play the nice guy role, like just being too willing to be the benefit of the doubt or being too optimistic. Oh, they'll fix it. Or, oh, I got to train them better. But yeah, the more and more I've had to go through farm people, I realized like usually that first, like you said, that tingle gut feeling is usually right, isn't it? Yeah. And just to clarify, you said hiring unicorns was a mistake or that's what you supposed or no, hiring unicorns is a mistake. Trying to like, if you can get your hands on a unicorn, that's fantastic. Don't go unicorn hunting. Hire for a, I need a Google ad specialist. I need a copywriter. I need a video editor. Dude, even looking for somebody who's video editor and graphic design, you're screwing yourself. Go find a graphic designer and then find, oh, hey, that actually, actually happened to us. Our graphic designer was pretty good at video editing. But trying to stack too much on somebody's plate, it lets them uh, in, in many, and there's many other problems, but it lets them know you're not necessarily respecting the work. It's like, oh, I need someone who can do accounting and lawnmower repair. What are we doing? Like find somebody for a role. And if you don't have those roles, you haven't niched down enough. You haven't figured out your processes. You don't know what you want. You're basically like, oh, we're growing as an agency and I need another me. Well, for what? Mm-hmm. Now, now the minute you're in that, and that's a really good inflection point. That's a good sign that, all right, you're ready to get more specific. And you can't just hire somebody because you want to take on more clients. You have to go decide what kind of client you want to take on, what service you're going to offer the client. What are the specific growth opportunities facing you? It's just like in marketing, businesses come to us and are like, we need more traffic. And I look at their website, I'm like, you don't need more traffic. You need better <laughs> conversion. You know? So it's like, I need more salespeople. Do you? Or do you need better retention and better client management? So really getting granular as to what the business looks like, what the real problems are far too often. And I was the same way. Founders just want to hire themselves. Then you surround yourself with a bunch of yes men. Get really excited about people that argue with you. Those are the best people to have and to keep around. I have a young lady that works for me, Regina Bellows. Regina now runs one of our sister companies, Startup PPC. I can't open my mouth without Regina fighting me on everything. Every and she dude, she's a blessing and a godsend. And I don't know what I'd do without her because there's so many times where the emperor really has no clothes. And I've got a hundred employees and there's others that I don't think I surround myself with. Yes, people, I hope not. But, you know, there's quite a few times where people would just let me walk right off this cliff. And Regina's raising her hand and she's like, I don't know about this. So those people are worth their weight in gold if you're willing to put up with them. Yeah, which is definitely me and my wife argue quite a bit, but it, it works out. She's always telling me no on the right things. So I started to accept it. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. Last question before we wrap up and do the, do the outro is... When you say hiring peak performers, is there anything that you do that helps you find those people? Or is it more that you just have like a high standard so through a lot of candidates? No, I've got a YouTube video that gives away not the, all the secret sauce, AJ, but a lot of it. I'll find it here and then you can share it with your audience how it is. Yeah, perfect. We'll link it down below for everyone else listening on the podcast. 
Yeah, I call it the Pareto talent system and maybe the thing I'm most proud of from an entrepreneurial perspective. Sweet. Yeah, everyone listening, we'll pull that up. But yeah, man, so where can everyone else be if they want to learn more for you? Anything that you want to shout out? I'd also love for you to take a minute to talk about Driven, where we first met, because I think that's something that everyone watching should know about. Yeah, I'm the co-host of the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. So if the sound of my voice doesn't repel you, you can always listen to that. And then the Driven Mastermind, that's my fun place to go hang out. We're really a weekly mastermind. We meet every week virtually and then once a quarter in person. And we've got, I mean, you saw it, you were in LA. I think we have the best marketing mastermind in the world. And it makes more of the members than it is the speakers or the authorities, which is what a mastermind should be. You know, like War Room, God bless it, did a lot for me. But if you had 40 grand in a pulse, you got into War Room. Uh, (laughs) So we're, we're trying to play it a little bit closer to the vest there. It's 30K for the year. If that, for whatever reason, is like, oh, that's a little much, don't do it. You have to be a million dollar business. You have to be willing to, or able to 10X your investment. And you have to bring something to the table, you know, like contribute. It's what community needs, our whole needs to be greater than the sum of our parts. But it's a lot of fun, man. It's pretty cool to be surrounded by people like that. I'm the dumbest, poorest person in that room consistently, <laughs> which is the room you want to be in. No, honestly, yeah. So I just went for the first time a couple of months ago. And out of all the events I've been to, that's probably the best, best room of entrepreneurs have been like people doing like mind blowing things and mind blowing numbers. So yeah, we'll definitely link that little for anyone interested. And man, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. Yeah, appreciate you having me, brother. Thank you. If you're listening, watching, thanks for the time and the attention and good on you. There's a bunch of other things you'd have been doing with your time. So investing it, I think in this way is hopefully was at least valuable. I'm not telling you you should be listening to me, but you should definitely be listening to AJ. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll appreciate it, man. And uh, we'll love to have you back sometime.